Father, we praise you and we thank you that you are doing far more than what our eyes can see, what our ears can hear. We thank you and we praise you that there is more available to us than what we have yet seen and experienced. I pray, Father, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears through your word to hear of that goodness and glory today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. Maybe seated. What's your story? It's an important question because where we've been has a lot to do with who we are and where we're going. That's why it gets asked over and over again in doctor's offices and therapist couches and welcome dinners and meetings with the pastor. Where we've come from, what we've experienced has a massive effect on where we are right now and where we're headed in the future. We're, we're, We're slowly starting to understand this, that we still hold past trauma in our bodies ongoingly. Our DNA given to us from our parents can tell us the chances for certain types of cancer. Right? Our skin color and the size of our bank account and the amount of education received sorts us into certain social circles and puts up barriers to other circles. The way our parents raised us still comes out for good and for ill. Our first church experiences give us a baseline for what healthy or unhealthy community looks like. The sins we wrestled with many years ago are probably similar to the sins we wrestle with now. The harms done to us, even decades removed, shape our responses to difficult things now so that sometimes we'll we'll look around and say, well, why did I do that? Our stories are so powerful in shaping us that it's tempting to think that what we've experienced is who we are. That our past will be our future, that our narrative is our identity, that what we've done and what's been done to us will be our destiny. Either because we're stuck in it or because we've run in the other direction and we're reacting against it. Still, there's this control that the past has. But it's not quite that simple, right? It's not just the bare facts of our lives that make up our story. When we tell our story, there's a framing of the facts, a selection and interpretation of the data of our lives so that we're telling a certain narrative. There's a whole field of psychotherapy known as narrative therapy that seeks to leverage the power of this reframing because you can tell a story of some trauma that's happened to you with yourself as the victim or with yourself as the overcomer. In a conflict, is the one who was wrong or the one who was wronged? Every time we tell our story, we're making these kinds of decisions. We're picking some things to put in. We're we're taking some things to leave out. We choose the role we play and the role others play. We're we're constantly like rewriting our many memoirs, right? Giving ourselves and others lenses through which to view the significance, the meaning of our stories. In that sense, the way we tell our stories can also have an incredibly powerful effect on who we are and where we're going. We're not just bound to the facts. The the narrative helps us. But still, that power is contained within certain boundaries, within certain limits. Because our stories can only go as far as we have gone. And our framing of them can only stretch as far as our imaginations 
Right? We can't just make up things. We can't just claim someone else's experience as ours. Right? We call that fraud. We are limited to the raw material of our lives, the power of our imaginations. We cannot become another, cannot stretch beyond our own skin. We can't just adopt someone else's story as our own. We're stuck in our own. Or so we think. Today we're going to be finishing up Ephesians 1, starting at verse 15, and we're going to find out that we think wrongly. Over the first 14 verses of this book, Paul has been telling the Ephesians about their position in Christ, about whose they are. As Pastor Scott preached last week, he's driving home the point that their relationship with God is not dependent on their spiritual practice, that that whose they are is not tied to what they do, but what he's done. So in those verses, Paul is talking about what's settled, what's steady, what's rock solid, what's, what's outside their awareness or their experience. But in verse 15, he makes a turn a key turn towards now, how are they to move forward in this? He begins to offer up a prayer about where the Ephesians are headed, what he longs for them to see as part of their own experience, as part of their own stories. Okay? We're going to start reading in verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 1. For this reason, Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Okay, let's stop there for a second. It would be tempting So look at those first 14 verses of Ephesians and the glory and the goodness is there and say, okay, it's all done. And yes, it is all secured, but it's not all done. Paul asked that there would be something more, something next. Paul asked that the Father of Jesus would do these two things. One, that he would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Two, so that they would know him better. Okay, let's start with the second one of those. There's a tremendous difference between being known and knowing. Between being grasped and grasping. Paul, over the first 14 verses, has clarified that what makes them who they are is being known, is being grasped by the Father. But now, he prays that they would wake up to that, that they would wake up to what is really real, that they would wake up to what is truly true. Paul uses this language of waking up in Ephesians 5 when he says, wake up, sleeper, and rise from the dead. Paul knows that the Father knows them. He's now asking that they would know the Father, that they would know who he is, who he says we are, what he says he's up to. He's asking that they would begin to grasp what they have been grasped by. Because he knows that they still don't have any idea. And friends, neither do we. And we think we know all kinds of things. Most of all things about what we have experienced. Nobody else can tell us what we've experienced, right? But we're still mostly groping around in the dark. That's not just true of the spiritual realm. It's true in the things that we're doing every day, the things we're seeing and tasting and touching in this physical reality. I heard on the radio the other day 
that our noses, human noses, are limited to 5,000 cents. And you're like, limited? That's like a ton. I don't know that I've spelled 5,000 different things. Seems like a lot. Until you realize that a dog can smell 100,000 cents. A dog knows way more about your world than you do in the realm of scent. There are whole dimensions of experience which you are not experiencing. You're only getting this small slice. And if that's true in the physical realm, for goodness sake, how much more true is it in the spiritual realm? Now, we can't change our nose and we can't change our spiritual sight. So the only way to know is to be shown. That's why Paul asked that the Father would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation. We need God himself to show us, to reveal to us what is happening. If these things that God has given us, all these gifts, are going to move uh, into the realm of our experience, into the narratives of our stories, then God is going to have to give us eyes to see, going to have to give us ears to hear, give us hearts to receive what is currently beyond our understanding. Now, if you're hearing that, really hearing it all the way down, you should be a little bit insulted and frustrated. Because Paul is telling us we can't do something. And if there's anything Americans don't like to hear, it's that we cannot do something. But we have a choice before us. We can either live our lives trapped within our own experience, with our own ability to assess what's happening, or we can open ourselves to something beyond that. If we make that trade, we do lose the ability to say, this is what my life is about. But we gain something far greater. Read verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened. Same way of, different way of saying the same thing. In order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now, there's a lot here, but a few weeks ago, we talked about hope as the present experience of a future reality, the confidence now of what is to come. And then last week, Pastor Scott talked about our inheritance, how the Holy Spirit is the down payment on the future that's coming, that spoonful of the feast that awaits. Both of these phrases, the hope, the inheritance, they're pointing towards the future. They're pointing towards where we're headed. And since we've talked about them recently, I want to focus on this third phrase, which is also rooted in the future, but is also spilling over into the present. It says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. Power. The Greek word here is where we get our word dynamite from. Paul is saying that there is a power, an incomparably great power outside of us that is for now, the grammar is a little tricky here in that word for. It is power on our behalf, yes, but it could also be translated as power towards us, power into us. There is an intimacy here, a, a personalness to this power, which means it's not just something knowing in terms of like intellectually grasping, but knowing in terms of experiencing. 
What Paul is saying, what he's asking for is that the Holy Spirit would come so that we might wake up to the fact that there is a power outside of our stories that is invading our stories. He's asking that we would wake up to the fact that our stories are not sealed, not impervious uh, to the world outside. We're not the only ones who know what's going on with us. They are permeable. They can be messed with. And since this is an incomparably great power, they will be messed with. What he's trying to say to the Ephesians is where they've come from is not where they're going. That what has been done to them or what they have done is not their destiny. There is an incomparably great power that has interrupted this story that is taking root in it. Like, of course, there's power in DNA and diagnoses, but that is not an incomparably great power. There is power in education or lack thereof, power in bank accounts that are big or small, power in trauma for sure, power in sin, power in other people and the words they speak. There is power in those words that we speak over ourselves as we tell our stories, but it is not the incomparably great power. None of those things determine who we are. None of those things dictate our destiny because the power of God himself, that incomparable power is breaking in. Now, that power doesn't obliterate what's happened to us. It doesn't wipe out the rest of our stories. It, it, it doesn't put our stories into reverse and take us backward before those things happen to us. It fills the story. It transforms it. It redeems it. It takes us through those things and beyond them into something greater. I think we all have like glimpses of how this works, how, how sometimes the worst parts of our stories, the Holy Spirit can, can turn into superpowers, right? If we've been through a season of incredible grief, our ability to grieve on behalf of others is often expanded. If we've been through a season of incredible weakness and vulnerability, our, our, our ability to be strength to those who are going through something similar massively expands. You see, our stories, the things that we have experienced, they shape our destiny. They provide the context. They, they set the stage. They, you get the, they're the container. But they do not, must not, cannot dictate our future if there is an incomparably great power breaking in. Because wherever we are in our stories, another word is being spoken by us or others, whatever word is being spoken by us or by others, whatever those things are, that is not the last word. Wherever we feel like there's nowhere to go that we're trapped, this incomparably great power comes in and says, you are not stuck. You may feel stuck, but you are not stuck. You may feel trapped, but you are not trapped. There is always power to bring healing to mind, body, and soul, the community, to world. We see the effects of this power all throughout the rest of the letter. This power frees us from the evil one. This power gives us strength to do good works. This power heals relationships between men and women. It heals relationships between ethnicities and cultures. This power in this letter is doing impossible things which seem so far beyond our ability. This power is healing selfishness and alcoholism and sexual addictions. We dare not presume how that power will work right here, right now, in this moment. We've talked about this at IEC before. 
It's not our power. We don't get to decide how it flows out. We don't get to create expectations about whether healing is going to come in this area or that one. But, but, but it is real nonetheless, and it is coming nonetheless. God's power is like a lightning bolt, not a light switch. We don't own it, and we can't regulate it. But we don't have to pay for it either. The promise, what Paul wants to wake us up to is that lightning is striking and its power is being wielded in us on our behalf. Not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, not because we've paid for it, not because the Father owes it to us, but because our story is not just our story. Our story has been grafted into Christ's story. And Christ's story has been grafted into us. Listen to the way he frames this. Verse 19 again. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Hear that. The incomparably great power that he gives to us is the same power he exerted at the resurrection. And what happened there? Death, hell, sin, judgment, condemnation were overcome. The original Greek actually ties them together a little bit more closely than just saying the word same. It can seem, okay, if he's giving the same power, there's like a little resurrection power thrown out there. And then a little resurrection power thrown out out there. And it's the same kind of stuff. But what the Greek says is that he is exerting this power now according to the power he exerted then. In other words, it's in concert with, it's in parallel with, it's referencing back to. The idea is that the original exertion of resurrection power is the fountain that is still flowing. It's not something like resurrection power. It's not something kind of close to resurrection power. It's not something that might perhaps remind you of resurrection power. It is the resurrection power, spanning the ages, poured out then and spilling over into now. It's that power unleashed on Easter morning that is invading our stories. Friends, just as there is more to Jesus than we can see at this moment, so there is more to us and our stories than we can see at this moment. Verse 19, again, halfway through. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. There's like so much here. Jesus' resurrection, his ascension to the place of rule and reign, his authority over all earthly powers. I want to unpack that for just a second because the context here is that many in the ancient Mediterranean world saw invisible powers behind everything that happened. Maybe like we would use the word fate today. The governments had powers behind them. What we call natural disasters 
had spiritual powers that were working behind them. Ephesus was, was actually smack dab in the middle of an earthquake zone. So this language of powers controlling their stories, controlling their destinies, these, these things that were outside of control, their control that had happened to them, that were dictating their future, they would have totally understood and gotten that. But what Paul is saying is that when Christ rose from the dead and when he was seated over each and every one of those powers, that none of them are now more powerful than him. That none of what has shaped and formed our stories are more powerful than him. That he is now exerting his rule and his reign on our behalf for the church. That he appointed him to be head over everything for us who are his body. I want to sit in that body imagery for a moment. We can like, you know, Christ's body, except we can like run right past that. We need to marinate in how radical that is. Paul is saying that we are attached, united, fused, bound, glued, indwelling, and indwelt, like pick your thesaurus metaphor, to Christ. That wherever he goes, we go. That wherever we go, he goes. That whatever his story is, is our story too. I want to use a bizarre illustration here. I want us to imagine if my foot was asked to tell its story, was asked to write a memoir, my life in sandals. <laughs> imagine a foot describing everything it's been through, like stepping on wasps, stubbing toes, getting toenails mashed off by tables falling on them. That's a particularly dark chapter of the foot story. But imagine if my foot tried to tell the story without reference to the rest of my body. If it tried to tell the story as if it was on its own. Friends, that is what we are doing when we start to think, start to talk, start to act like our story is just our story. Right? When we get stuck when we despair of ever being freed from sin, when we act like something is too hard, when we, we give up on a dream, when we refuse to move forward in forgiveness or in repentance, we are giving what's happened to us too much power in our narrative. When we let some harm that is done to us by the church or someone else dictate the way we walk through the world, we are giving it too much power in our story. There is an incomparably greater power that we now have access to because his story is now interwoven with our story and our story is now his story. We cannot tell our story without referencing what happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago because what happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago is what's happening right now in us. What Christ does in the heavenly realms right now is what is being done in us. The most important thing about you it's not where you're from, what trauma happened, what difficulties you face, what losses you have received. The most important thing about you is that you have died and rose again. The most important thing about you is that you have ascended to the heavenly realms, that resurrection power is now pulsing through your veins, that the drama of Good Friday and Easter Sunday and Ascension Day is being played out in the flesh, in our time, in your story right now. 
But of course, that's not immediately apparent. Which is why Paul says that the eyes of our hearts have to be enlightened, that the spirit of wisdom and revelation has to wake us up, has to rouse us. The spirit has to come upon us to tell us what's true for us. Because it would be easy to believe that the story of us is just addiction and violence and trauma and hatred and unforgiveness and tragedy, but it's not. The Spirit has to rouse us for what's true for the whole church. Because it would be tempting to think that the story of the church is just crusade and heresy and hypocrisy and division and failing over and over and over again, but that's not the whole story. Ultimately, the Spirit has to rouse us to what is true for the whole world. It says Christ is the one who fills everything in every way, Ephesians says. That's the last line here. The church is the first fruits of that filling, but Christ has given himself to the church for the sake of coming for the whole world because he will one day heal everything, which means the story of the world is not just rebellion and genocide and oppression and disaster and woe. This is all going somewhere. There's reason and meaning to this. One of the hardest things about living in our culture in these days is that there is no shared sense of what we're here for and where we're going. There is no shared story. There is no hope that this is all going somewhere worth going. But friends, we know that the pivot point is right now in this moment. We know that the pivot point is any time, any moment, because Christ, by the Spirit, is here with us, sharing in resurrection power. That means your history is not your destiny. Your past will not be your future, and it does not have to be your present. Friends, Christ is risen from the dead, and we are too. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Spirit, we need to pray because we cannot see. Come and fill us. Awaken us to the fact that there is more that is going on than we yet know. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear your voice speaking life and hope and beauty and truth and power into us. Jesus, we would know that not just intellectually, but in our experience. Would you come in this service, in these times of prayer, would you come and fill us so that we may know. Amen.